beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. About 500 years ago, and a monk was writing these words about our text. Then the entire Holy Scripture became clear to me, and heaven itself was open to me. That's Luther describing the moment that the Holy Spirit made clear to him the meaning of Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Luther had spent a lifetime under the Roman church, which was closing heaven to him. He was oppressed by the fear of God's wrath. He was oppressed by the fear of not having done enough to secure his salvation and to atone for his sins. And so, when the Holy Spirit opened Luther's mind to understand the gospel in our text. He understood the liberating power of God's truth, that salvation is by grace alone, sola gratia, through faith alone, sola fide, in Christ alone, solus Christus. And this experience led him a few years later to post the 95 Theses, and that led in turn, to the ensuing explosive growth of the Reformation in the 16th century. After many centuries of accumulated grime and man-made traditions and man-made doctrines, obscuring the gospel in the church, centuries of the church holding to the form of religion but denying its power, God raised up men like Luther, to call the church back to the pure gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And because God used this text in that way, we consider it this morning on October 31st, which is uh, Reformation Day. It was on this day in 1517 that Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the chapel church there in Wittenberg. Now, Paul begins... Our text, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And you might wonder why he would be ashamed. Why is he talking about being ashamed? Well, he had a lot of reasons to be ashamed. He was going, he wanted to preach the gospel in Rome, but Rome was the center of imperial power. All the powerful senators, the emperor himself and all of his court and the bureaucrats and the powerful generals and military men the patrician class, all the movers and shakers of the world were there in Rome as a center of power. Who would dare come into that context and preach to these men and to these women that they were slaves of sin and that they must bow the knee to a crucified Jew who had died the death of a common criminal. Rome was also the center of human wisdom. The Romans hired the best Greek tutors to teach their children in Greek philosophy and in all the knowledge and science of the age. And if Greek philosophy knew one thing, it knew this, that the body is the prison of the soul and that the greatest thing 
for a human being is to be set free from the material world and to be pure spirit. Who would dare come into such an intellectual context and preach the resurrected Savior? An impossibility, according to Greek science, an absurdity, according to Greek philosophy. And Rome was full of Jews waiting for the promised Messiah to bring about political liberation, to throw off the yoke of the Roman Empire. Who would dare come to them and preach the crucified Messiah, the Messiah who hung on a tree when one who hangs on a tree is cursed by God? Who would dare come to these Jews and preach a Messiah who says, my kingdom is not of this earth? Who would dare come to these Jews and preach that you cannot earn your salvation through your good works and your keeping of the law? Paul had a lot of reasons to be ashamed of preaching the gospel to those at Rome. But look what he says in verse 15. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And there's a reason he's eager. There are a bunch of reasons. First of all, Paul is deeply aware of his call to be a preacher. Look how he introduces himself at the beginning of this chapter. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul, like every faithful preacher throughout history, has a sense of his office. And that's so important because when a preacher who is nothing, when a preacher who is a, an earthen vessel and who has nothing to offer in himself, when he has an understanding of his office and his calling, that gives great courage. And that's what Paul has. He has a deep sense of God's call, and he understands it to be based on God's sovereign decree. He says to the Galatians in Galatians 1.15, He who had set me apart before I was born, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul understands that his office is not from men, but that from eternity God has chosen him to be a bearer of the glad tidings of Jesus Christ. And so he has this sense of obligation that he must preach, that he cannot not preach. And that's why he says to the Corinthian church, for necessity, for obligation is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul couldn't think. He couldn't bear to think about preaching all kinds of other stuff or entertaining his listeners. But Paul was under the heavy, heavy obligation to preach the gospel of Christ. So that's the first reason why he's eager because of his sense of call. And secondly, he's eager to preach to the Romans because of the content of the gospel. Because it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3 there in your Bible. The gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. And look at verse 9 of our chapter. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Now, some people might object to Paul, and they might say, Paul, you have a weak message about a weak 
failure of a man who died in shame. You have a theology of the cross. It's never going to wash. It's never going to be acceptable. It's not what rich and powerful and important people want to hear. You need a theology of glory to attract people and to gather people to your cause. And in answer to that, if you turn in your Bible quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul has something to say about the character of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.18, where he says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And look at verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's why Paul says what he says in our text. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the gospel of Christ. That's why it is the gospel of the power of God for salvation. Now, so often, so quickly, we, the church, we, we come to church looking for the wrong thing. We want a pleasant elocution. We want a pleasant speech about rules for good living. We want tips for biblical stewardship. We want biblical advice for relationships and marriage building. And certainly these things are important. And certainly the gospel transforms every aspect of life and teaches us to subject every thought and every area of life to God's will. But if the preached gospel is to be the power of God, it must be the preaching of Christ who died for sinners. Because everything flows from that. Because this is our greatest need. And it is the greatest need of our family and friends and neighbors and our colleagues who are outside of Christ. Only the power of the gospel can save them from the darkness can save them from slavery to sin, and can save them from eternal judgment. And so the church is not here to entertain, or to intrigue, or to make people comfortable, or to affirm them in their life of sin. The church preaches the gospel. And the gospel comes to everyone, saying, repent and believe, flee from the wrath to come, there is no salvation outside of Christ. Come, bow the knee, confess with your tongue that Jesus is Lord. And when the gospel is preached as the power of God for salvation, then the Holy Spirit does a mighty work and he takes dead sinners and he changes their hearts and he makes them into living sons and daughters of God. He creates life out of death. He brings light out of the darkness. That's the power of God for salvation. So how can Paul say that the gospel is the power of God for salvation? Well, look at verse 17. He explains it. He says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. 
That's why the gospel is the power of God for salvation, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, what is righteousness? Righteousness is a state of being not guilty before a holy God. It means that there's nothing on your record. It means you can stand before God and God can instruct the angel to open the book and to read out all of your sins. And the angel flips to the page of your life and he looks and he says, Lord, it's blank. Nothing recorded here. This person is righteous. They owe nothing. That's what righteousness is. Now, Luther spent years understanding the words of our text, the righteousness of God, understanding them in this way, that it is the righteousness which God has and by which, by which he judges sinners. And so this verse brought terror to Luther. The righteousness of God is revealed from heaven. He read that much like verse 18 speaks. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And it made him afraid because he knows, he knew that God is perfectly righteous. He knew that God destroys sinners in his righteous judgment. And Luther in the monastery where he was would sometimes look at this painting of Jesus as judge, coming to judge the living and the dead, and Luther would be in fear and terror. And he would plead with Jesus, Oh, Lord Jesus, not Maranatha, don't come back. Stay away, Lord, because I've still got sins that i got to make up for. I still have sins that I have to atone for. I still have to grow in more holiness so that I can be acceptable to you on that great day of judgment. But then the Holy Spirit opened his eyes and he understood the gospel sense of our text, that the righteousness of God in our text is not only the righteousness of God, his holy judgment upon sin, but it is a righteousness which he gives, a righteousness which comes from God, and Luther called this an alien righteousness. It means it doesn't belong to us. It comes from outside of us. What Luther understood finally by this righteousness of God, this righteousness which God gives, is what the Apostle Paul describes in the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 521, where he says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What is Paul saying there to the Corinthians? He's saying, God took all of your sin and all of my sin, and he put it on Jesus so that Jesus became the very incarnation of sin. And there was no sin left on us. And then God did something else. He took all of the righteousness and obedience and innocence and holiness of Jesus, and he put it all on us. So that when the angel flips to the page of your life, it's not just that the page says there are no sins to judge, but the page is full of every righteous and holy and acceptable deed and thought and word to a holy God. That you are as righteous and holy and acceptable before God as Jesus himself is. And we know 
that there's no doubt that Jesus is acceptable before God and that he is loved. That's the great exchange. Our sin on him, his righteousness on us. That's the righteousness of our text, the righteousness of God, righteousness which is freely given to unworthy sinners to make them as clean and holy as Jesus himself. Now, if the gospel is the power of God for salvation, and if in it the righteousness of God is revealed, then we have to ask ourselves, how do we participate? How do we get a piece of this? How do we, get a, how do we, how do we share in this truth? How does it become true for us? Well, then notice what the scripture says, verse 17. The righteousness of God is revealed. That means that God sovereignly makes it known. It is not earned. We can't buy a share with money or with good works. We can't inherit it simply by being born in a Christian family and going to a Christian school and going to catechism and going to church. We can't find it. We can't attain it by striving, by trying harder, by trying to be more holy, by trying to sin less. None of those ways are ways to participate in this righteousness of God. It is revealed. God makes it known sovereignly. God sovereignly gifts it. All we have to do is believe and receive it in faith. And that's why the apostle says, it is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And we can translate the text this way, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Basically what Paul is saying is this, from beginning to end, from A to Z, it's all through faith. Sola fide, by faith alone. And you think of what he wrote in Romans chapter 10. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, if you have faith in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. With the heart one believes and is declared righteous with the righteousness of God. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. My brother, my sister, look at our lives. And if we're honest, it's horrifying to see what we merit by the things we've said and done and thought. If that's what we had to offer God, if that was our entrance ticket into eternity, all we can have is an awful expectation of judgment. That's what living by works gives you. But the righteous shall live by faith, not by trying to be good, not by trying to be the most right person in the church about doctrines and practice and church order, not by trying to please men or to please God, not by trying to work really hard and being a better person and a, and a good Christian. The gospel calls us to look outside of ourselves, to look to the cross, 
to look to the Christ and to repent and to believe and to take hold of Christ and to embrace him by faith and never let go and to say of Jesus, you are my life, you are my righteousness. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Now the pre-Reformation church had in large part lost this gospel. They had lost the Christ of the gospel and the gospel of Christ. They were going through the motions of religion and there was no power in the things that they were teaching and doing. Brother and sister, we're 500 years on from the Reformation. Don't think that we can't fall into the same trap. You know, being a member of a Reformed church comes with a lot of benefits. There's a lot of social capital. You got family and, and friends and school and, and, and work. You've got this big network. If you need something, there's always somebody a phone call away or an email away. And it's very easy to think that just performing the required duties and avoiding scandalous sin is the same as being a true Christian. It is easy, brother and sister, from generation to generation, from year to year, to lapse into a kind of cultural Christianity, a Christianity which kind of describes us superficially, while our hearts remain untouched and unchanged. But God calls us to something far greater. God calls us to be gripped by the gospel, to be transformed by the power of God, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and to be daily transformed by the power of the Spirit after the very image of Christ himself. That's what the righteousness of God means for our lives day to day. It means that we look and we think and we act and we speak more and more like Christ himself. Can people say that about us? Is that what God's doing in our lives? Now, maybe you're listening to this sermon online or right now even, and you're living without Christ and you've convinced yourself that this world is all there is. Maybe you're online and you don't know the Lord Jesus and you're not part of the church of God. Maybe you're online or here and you're kind of just going through the motions, but your heart really doesn't hold on to the truth of the gospel. You're just floating along in this superficial Christianity. Well, know this. Every day, there is rushing towards you faster and faster the most terrifying judgment under the eternal wrath of God. If you are outside of Christ, whether you're in the church or not, if you are outside of Christ, then all you can expect is fearful expectation of judgment. And I command you in the name of God, repent and believe. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. There's no distinction about being in a Canadian Reformed church or any kind of church or a Reformed church or being in the world. It applies to everyone that we need to repent and believe 
that we need to call upon God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the scripture says to everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the power of the gospel, beloved, that Christ died for sinners, that Christ is our righteousness, that Christ has destroyed the power of sin and death. And as long as we cling to this gospel in faith, as long as this gospel is preached from this pulpit, we can say together with our brother Martin that the entire Holy Scripture became clear to us and heaven itself was opened to us. Amen.